Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast, joining me via Zoom, is an LDS author, Sean Moon. Welcome to the podcast, Sean. Richard, I am thrilled to be with you and be able to meet your listeners. Um, Thank you very much for offering this opportunity. And um, we've had a lot of LDS authors on the podcast, and I'm glad to do that. And so you can connect with their work. Um, it's always, I always want to do a good job of introducing my guests. So wherever you are, you'll get a feel for the podcast before we dive in. Um, Sean is a business executive in our communities. Um, in his mid fifties, he's had 35 plus years of, um, being a business executive. He's written for the wall street journal. He speaks frequently and he's written many books. Um, this is not a book about business, but it's a leader, a church, a leadership book, um, with LDS principles. And I'll just give you an idea of the, the couple of the parts of the book. And I think Sean will get into this is part two is leadership in my personal life. Um, part three is leadership in my family. And I've read chapter nine, which is develop charity. I've read chapter 11, which is lead with empathy. And those two chapters are worth buying the book just for those two chapters. And I plan to read the entire book. Part three is leadership in my calling. So, um, and these are all gospel-based principles. So um, Sean has this gift of taking church leader talks, scriptures, and his own lived experiences, because he isn't, this isn't just theoretical. This is a practical application of Sean's lived experience in the business world and in other circles to take gospel principles, much like Steve Covey. And he'll probably talk about Steve Covey and um, help bring these principles to life in those three circles that I just mentioned. Um, we'll link to the book in the show notes so you can find it and buy it if you'd like to. Um, and I'll link to Amazon. It may be other places, but I'm aware it's on Amazon. Um, I may have mentioned this, that you're married, um, have four kids, um, about six grandkids. Number six is on the way. Number six, just any day now. How's that for an introduction, Sean? (laughs) That's, that's uh, really good. Just one clarification. I've written a book which became a Wall Street Journal bestseller, but I, I haven't actually written for the Wall Street Journal. Tell us but, the name uh, of your book that became a Wall Street Journal bestseller. It's entitled Leading Loyalty. It's about how we create a, a profound sense of loyalty and passion for those with whom we work and for whom we work. How many books have you written? Uh, this is number seven, actually. And did you get an undergraduate degree that would have thought you'd be a writer? That's not even good English. Did you plan mm-hmm. to be a writer? Or did this just come later? I have a degree in English literature, and I'm pretty certain that every single one of my professors would say, what did, what did Sean do? <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, I, I uh, did lots of writing while I was at BYU. Well, that's great. And um, I think a lot of authors don't think they become an author and don't look at themselves as author. And I think that's one of the purposes of a podcast like this, if you're young in college or coming out of college or even younger, that there may be doors that you could walk through that you may not think you can. Yes. Um, and so, but I'll turn it over to you, Sean, to talk, just run with it. Well, thank you, Richard. And again, I'm I'm just grateful for you and for the great work that you do and the lives that you have touched and impacted mine and included among those. And, and so for me, this is such a privilege to be able to spend just a few minutes with you today. Um, so thank you very, very much. I, you know, I, I, I do love to write. Um, it's not always an easy process for me, but I sort of feel compelled. My father was a, was a professor and was an author. And um, so I think I, I got the bug from him 
And I remember something that I think it was Susan Easton Black said a while back. I was listening to a, a podcast and, and she said, you know, I don't really know about a topic until I start writing about it. Wow. And I, I really love that insight that there is a depth of understanding when you begin a project like this, you start to put on a different a set of glasses. You see the world through everything through that lens. And um, it becomes a really rich, difficult, but you, you know, because you're an author, you know how that um, it kind of takes over for a little while, but um, it, and it does help shape your thinking and your seeing. It was uh, just, I think, uh, prior to COVID, um, as we were approaching 2020, President Nelson had indicated that maybe it would be a good thing for us to consider as we are approaching the bicentennial of the first vision. Uh, to do something kind of in, in commemoration for that, you know, something in your life. And I had been thinking about the topic of leadership throughout my career. That's That's been my my primary focus in, in my career has been teaching uh, and consulting with leaders across the world. I've, I've actually had the privilege of working with leaders and executive teams on every continent of the planet except for Antarctica. So if anyone's <laughs> going, give me a holler. I'll carry your bags for you because that's on my list. Um, and that's been a very, very profound professional experience. And I continue to do some of that work that is really engaging in my life has certainly been blessed by my associate with these great leaders and great people. But I remembered and had sort of percolating in the back of my brain, a comment that President Kimmel gave um, to a group of um, YPO leaders way back in the, kind of, I think, 1974-ish timeframe. He wrote this marvelous article. It, the, it, an article was created from his remarks entitled, Jesus, the Perfect Leader. Remember that thing? I do. Um, terrific article. And in that, he makes this statement. He says that of all of the things that we can um, learn and from and study on the topic of leadership, the greatest source of leadership development is the scriptures. And so I, I, that, that, I read that many years ago, and it just never left me. And I had in the back of my scriptures some notes that I was taking on the topic. And when President Nelson said, I thought, maybe, maybe now is a time to... Uh, on the topic of scriptures as, a, as a, the source of how we learn to become leaders. Um, and so that's how the that was the genesis of uh, of the book. And then, of course, when you get writing, you start thinking and and studying and researching and talking to and kind of assimilating from everything in your life. And so this book is really um, a labor of love. It is it is a compilation of all of those efforts. Um, and and I will you know this, and I know that your listeners know this. There's something really remarkable when you study the scriptures with a singular purpose in mind. I don't always do that, but but sometimes I do. And it is so fascinating to me how rich that source is on really any topic that we, we want to explore. And certainly that is the case for uh, learning about leadership uh, from the scriptures. It, it uh, you know, of course, you, you look at the life of the Savior and there's just not enough space in the world, I think, to capture all the books that probably could and should be written about how he truly was the perfect example of leadership. Everything he did, if you're studying the topic of leadership and you study it through the lens of the Savior and how he taught and how he how he interacted, how he reached out to individuals uh, in power and those who 
were in the depths of despair, right? And, and everything in between, how he called people to the service, how people chose to follow him and leave everything, everything that they, they you know, had behind to say, yes, I will follow him. Uh, I will follow you. You know, that it, what a remarkable, remarkable study on the topic of leadership. So I tried to bring in um, a lot of that. And certainly um, there's so much more, you know, volumes more that, that could uh, be. But Richard, I also found as I was um, studying, you know, the lives of the prophets and these great women and men throughout the scriptures, what they did and how they sacrificed and how they answered calls and how they did their duty, um, you know, across all of the standard works, it, really every page is just filled with examples of how we can be better leaders. So that's really how the book came about, was was uh, a, something had been percolating, thinking about for a while, and President, uh, President Nelson really uh, uh, prompted me into action. I love that. Um, I love that segment, Sean. I wrote down a couple things. Jesus is the perfect leader. That's a good thing to be reminded of. I think of an org chart when I think of a leader, because I'm a business guy, and I think of the org chart, and I don't think Jesus was ever at the top of the org chart. He was kind of, um, we, of course he was, but you know, a lot of the times he led by example, and he led not from a position of like mandate, but a position of love. And I love your second comment that I start in my notes, the greatest source of leadership development is the scriptures. Um, I haven't thought about that. That's probably not completely new to me. But when you talk about reading the scriptures singular, and if and I think we're all leaders in our family. That's one of the things about your book that I like is we're leaders in our family. We're leaders um, in our personal circle. And um, it's not just if we're in charge of a family or in charge of a congregation or in charge of a business. Um, but then looking at the scriptures um, and reading through the lens of what can I do to be a better leader. Um, it's really thoughtful. Thank you for for that. Uh, you know, Stephen Covey said something to me many years ago that that um, I think helped shape shape my whole point of view on leadership. He he, and he said it several times. Leadership is a choice; it's not a position. And I think that we sometimes get confused, especially those of us in the business world. We get confused with this sense of title or position and equate it to leader. So for example, we see Richard, you doing something really good as an individual contributor. And so we promote you and congratulations. Now you're going to be a leader of other people by the very nature of, you know, how we convey that we call you a leader. Well, you may or may not be a leader, right? Leadership is something more than just a title. One of the things I try to emphasize in, in this book, right from the very beginning is that Every single one of us has an obligation to lead. Now, every single one of us doesn't have the title, you know, right now, but we all have our lives to lead. I remember um, just a, a, a story from my own experience. I was 14 years old. I was the first day of high school. My parents had drilled it into my brain that this is when grades start to matter. And so I was uptight and, you know, excited and nervous and didn't want to get uh, a bad grade because I knew if I didn't, I'd never go to college and my life would fall apart. All the stuff that, you know, had been <laughs> pounded into me. And so I sat in the front row of my first class. It happened to be my early morning seminary class. Brother Williams was my amazing teacher, by the way, my seminary teacher. And, and he said, welcome students, welcome to high school. 
What I like you to do now is take out a sheet of paper. We're going to take a quiz and it will count on your final grade. And I remember thinking, you haven't taught us anything, nothing. And here we are, you're, you're, you're going to have a quiz. It's going to count against my grade. I'm going to fail. I'm never going to go to college, you know, all those things. And it was just one simple question. He asked, who is the most important person in the world? And I remember sitting there in his class thinking, hmm, what does he want me to say? Because he's not taught me anything. Is it? And I got the, the answer wrong. What he was trying to teach us is that the most important person in the world for any of us is us. Because the point is, no one else makes my choices for me. Nobody else makes my choices. I'm the only one that makes choices for me. You're the only one that makes choices for you. And, and so because of that, we are accountable to the choices that we make. We have to lead our lives with that sense of ownership, of our accountability, of our choices. We have to have a clarity on who we really are. The first chapter, this is, the, this is section two, where I talk about leading in your own life. And I, I talk about this sense of, 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 do you know, do you, do we really know who we are? What is our identity? I think for church members and for any person on the planet, I mean, what a, what a profound, significant question for us to ponder. And I don't think we can actually truly ever understand that in the here and now. I will learn so much more about that. But we can get glimpses, I think, that help us navigate through difficult times of life. Do we really know who we are? And the easy sort of what I call the Sunday school answers to say, well, yes, I'm a child of God. Okay, let's plumb that for a minute. Do you really understand what that means? And of course, we don't understand fully what that means. We, we get glimpses of it. But the more we grasp on that really critical concept, the better we are able to, to, to lead in our own life. So that's just one example. Certainly, when you receive a calling, when you're a member of the, a family, um, we need to demonstrate leadership traits. You need to be able to plan and organize how to get the work done. You need to be able to influence and and engage other people. All those things we naturally and, and rightly attribute to leadership. But but I actually would, would suggest that it starts before when you think about how do I influence others? And it is starts with how do I lead my own life? Who is responsible for my life and my choices? And that's me. And Richard, think about this. Think about even in the family. We think about, all right, who are the leaders in the family? Well, it's the mother. It's the father, it's the patriarch, it's the matriarch, it's the grandparents. Yes, all of those are good and right answers. And it's the second cousin, and it's the little sister, and it's the, you know, the the annoying, you know, 13-year-old brother. Everyone, everyone plays a role in leading the family. So in this book, I, I really try to, to um, write to a broad audience that if, you know, if you are alive, you probably ought to consider your leadership roles. If you are in a family, in any role, any position, if you're, if you're an aunt or an uncle, maybe you're not married and maybe you don't have kids or, or, you know, you still have a significant opportunity to lead and an obligation and a mandate, I believe. So, yeah, it is. Um, I, I love this notion that leadership is a choice much more than a position. Listeners, I love that. And when you, th I think if we did word association with the word leadership, we would think of responsibility for other groups of people. 
But I think one of the things Sean's helping, and this is part two of his book, chapters five through eight, is leadership in our own life. That's just leadership of one and how important that is to take care of ourselves. I love what your seminary teacher challenged you to think. I think it's great to think of ourselves and leading ourselves. And so that not only that's good for us, but then our ability to influence and help other people. Um, so that's a terrific part of the book. Um, these four chapters under leadership in my personal life. And I love the way you talk about the family and everybody in the family is needed. So I think we sometimes think leadership comes later or leadership comes after a degree or leadership after I figured out my own way. But I love the way you push leadership way down into um, our lives as we're writing our own story or authoring our own story is part of leadership. That's terrific, Sean. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I think that it is, uh, it's a concept that is universal and, and one that we need to give serious thought to. And, and of course, as we grow, as we develop um, and, uh, and are given opportunities to engage other people in formal callings or formal responsibilities, there are, there are many things, you know, that, that are important to lead. Um, you know, leadership is, um, it, not only the ability to to influence yourself, yes, it's that, but also others in achieving important results. Um, achieving results, leaders help. You know, they help create a sense of vision. They help um, engage people. They develop trust. They establish confidence. Leaders remove barriers. They inspire. Help. They they help each of us want to do and give and offer our very best to enlist our finest efforts. Um, and in the process of doing that, leaders also develop other leaders. I mean, think about in your own experience uh, in, in leadership callings and, and professional responsibilities and looking back on those leaders that made a difference in your life. One of the things I would suggest is probably universal is that those leaders inspired us to want to be better. They inspired us to also want to step up and be a better leader. I love that. Talk more about that or any other section of the book. I just go for it, Sean. I think you've got well, forty-five minutes. I'll, of I'll, I'll, I'll just say this: really good stuff. <laughs> My, um, I'm, I'm always a little bit dubious of, and then some nice little pithy thing. Those are fine, but we all know that leadership, frankly, is a lot of things, and it's complicated. It's complex. And you might have said to yourself, like I have said before, at some point, my goodness, my life as a leader would be so much better if I just didn't have these darn people. <laughs> you know, it, it, it is think about how difficult it is to change your own behavior. You know, if you're trying to accomplish something that's hard, but you do it, you change your own behavior. Maybe it's an academic or an athletic or a health pursuit, whatever it is. You put your discipline, you do it. Um, think about if you're married or have ever been married or in a relationship or have ever been in a relationship, what it's like to try to change the behavior of another person. When I ask that question of people, we always give some giggles like, yeah, that's not going to happen. Right? It's hard. But what if your job is to get a result? that requires those with whom you work and associate to change their behavior in order to get that result. That's called leadership, right? And it is multifaceted with lots of layers and lots of challenges, lots of wonderful, rich opportunities. So when the people say leadership is, you know, I'm, I'm dubious, but I will share one. Good. 
kind of ties back to what I was saying. I actually love this one. And it's not comprehensive, but it certainly speaks to the point that one of our mandates as leaders is to develop other leaders. Stephen Covey once said, I added the word seeing. Um, He said, leadership is seeing and communicating another's worth and potential so clearly that person begins to see it in themselves. I think you could put the word teaching, by the way, in that same phrase. Teaching is seeing and communicating another's worth and potential so clearly that that person begins to see it in themselves. I think every single one of us some point where maybe even a time where we didn't know it, we didn't see it in ourselves, but that other person did where we step up and, and behave maybe only because that leader communicated it to us. They said, Richard, I believe in you. You can do this. I've had church callings before. I remember when I was called as a Bishop and I was, you know, I had four young kids and I traveled extensively and, and uh, I received the call and my wife, bless her heart, had had this strong feeling that this was coming and was right. And thank goodness, because I could lean on that a little bit. Um, and, you know, there are times I remember my first interview thinking, <laughs> can, can I do this? Really? I mean, really? And, you know, you find that um, you live up to the mantle and you live up to those levels of confidence that those leaders express in you. It's a remarkable thing. Our lives become forever blessed and forever changed because of our association with these great leaders. Actually, in that same article, President Kimball invites that same question to think about those leaders who went before, who blessed your lives. What is it that they did? And maybe what could we do as leaders to model that same kind of behavior? Right. So, again, there are lots of things, but but that is one that I love. I love this notion of seeing and communicating as in our leadership, the greatness that exists in other people and helping them live to, to realize that. I love that. Any other stories of just how to do that? If someone, a parent um, is sitting here saying, I, I, I love that, Sean. How do I do that in my kids or um, how do yeah. I do that in my young women if I'm a young women's leader? You know, <laughs> This is probably not a comprehensive answer, but I, I I have a chapter in my book entitled Key Chapter 10 that I think is, is no, as parents repeat, and as teachers. Will you repeat that? It just skips yes. for just a second. Keep, the name of the chapter is Keep an Eternal Perspective, Seeing Our Loved Ones for Who They Really Are, Not Simply for Their Current Choices. So... So, Richard, maybe one of the ways that we do that as parents is to remind um, ourselves that, you know, we were also once there and um, we also probably didn't always make the right and perfect choices, Um, but that that there is someone who truly does know us. And so and and understands I start the uh, as I start every chapter out with with a, a scriptural story, a vignette of how this principle was modeled. And I I start with the story of uh, Alma and Corianton. You know, they're in the mission and Corianton makes some choices that aren't great. 
In fact, um, he gets a pretty stern dress down from his father, who himself knows a little bit about making some foolish choices, right? True. So I think Alma has a very rich and wonderful perspective, and he talks about how Corianton's choices um, have impacted the, the work. It's, it's troubled the whole work. And he goes on to teach those magnificent chapters in and I believe starting in Alma 39 through 42, and and we, you know, rich, beautiful, wonderful doctrines that come as a result of that. And, and you know, at the end of that, guess what Alma does with Corianton? He sends him back to work. There's a scripture, and I don't have the exact reference, but it is one of my, my favorite scriptures in, uh, in all of the Book of Mormon. It's actually uh, Alma 49 and 30. Alma has gone now. And um, uh, Corianton's work as one of the Lord's ordained servants continues. And and the scriptures uh, uh, taught that he, along with his brethren, will peace and prosperity prosperity in the church. I think that's just magnificent that every single one of us makes choices all along the way that, you know, impede our ability to... Thank goodness for those leaders who see us for more than we are in that moment, who see us for who we really are, even when, even, and especially when we don't see it that way. But because they do, we rise up to that. Sometimes it takes time. I was teaching this to this concept to a group of executives, and, and one of the guys raises is like, pick me, pick me, I gotta share. So if you ever ever seen Shrek, you know, donkeys, he bounced, pick me, pick me. This was this was <laughs> how he responded and he said can i just tell you a story yes he said i was 14 years old he said i was in a troubled youth center i i'd made some bad choices in my life i'd come from total uh dysfunction in my family and and so i hear i was incarcerated at 14 and one day in this facility this gentleman comes up to me i'm having lunch in the cafeteria he kneels down he puts his arm on my shoulder and he just asks the question what do you want to do with your life? He said, normally just asking that question would have set me off because I was an angry young man. But for whatever reason, the way he asked the question, I could I feel something from his, his intent and his motive. I said, I don't know. He was a 14-year-old boy. He probably said, oh, because that's how 14-year-old boys talk. But in his brain, he said, I don't know. And he said, this gentleman looked me in the eyes and he said, I just want you to know I believe in you. And you can do anything you put your mind to. He said, the man got up, he walked away. And I sat there kind of dumbfounded because truly, he said, I had never in my life had the first thought that I might do something. It never occurred to me. It just was not how I was brought up. I just had never thought of it. He said, this gentleman stayed with him. Um, Actually, turns out he was a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And uh, I got introduced and I studied about that. I learned, I, I got out of my program. I, um, he said, sometimes this, this gentleman's guidance was tough love. There was high accountability, but always, always the reminder, I believe in you and you can do anything you put your mind to. He said, I, I served a mission. I came home. I went to college. I was the first person not in my family to ever graduate from high school. Clearly the first person ever to go to college. Got my four-year degree. Met a beautiful girl. We got married. We started our family. I went to graduate school. I got my master's degree. Said, today, 
I am leading this amazing team that does remarkable work. And sometimes he said, I pinched myself thinking, how in the world did I ever get here? He said, I can trace it all back to that gentleman that day who said, you know, I believe in you. And he said it and he meant it. So that's a long-winded answer, I think, to your question that comes with a lot of hard work in between. How do we do it? I don't know. But one of the things that I think we learn from the scriptures, and I think we learn from a loving Heavenly Father, is that He knows us better than we know us. I mean, He called Peter, James, and John, these people, and He left them in charge after just three years, right? And I don't think they fully understood. but. But we rise to the call when people believe in who we are. We, and, and not only believe, but communicate it, express it, reinforce it, bring accountability, certainly, teach, you know, gently guide. Sometimes um, was reaffirming you are capable of extraordinary things. I love that segment. I love that, Sean. And I love one of the sections of your book in these chapters about helping someone feel understood and being understood is one of the greatest gifts. But I think that gift as well as the gift of helping someone believe in themselves and has vision for themselves is a great gift. And there are lots of great scripture examples of that where meek and humble um, leaders um, weren't feeling particularly like leaders when they first started out. And that should give vision to all of us. So yeah, I mean, keep don't you sharing, think that that's, keep sharing. Yeah, go for it. Don't you think that's kind of a universal? President Kimball had that great book, The Silent Sleepless Night, where he, he shared his experience of being called as an apostle. And my goodness, we've all had our moments like that, as did Gideon, who said, You know, I am, oh my, why would you call me? As did Enoch when he said, All the people hate me. Why did you call me? And the Lord's response to that was, you know what, brother, open your mouth and I'll fill it up. Open your mouth and it will be filled. Get to work. And, and he did. And, and, you know, that is a, that is a universal, I think, um, trade. I think that's one of the things that the Lord looks for. Um, those people who may not be the best trained or the best scriptorians, or, but, but they love the Lord. That's their motivation. And with that, I think the Lord can work with with any of us. I love that. More sections of your book you'd like to share? Okay. Um, well, so there are four sections of the book. Uh, it starts off where I, I talk about what is leadership, the what, the why, why is it needed, where is it applied, and, and how do I go about doing it? Um, that's part one, the what, where, why, and how of leadership. I give several uh, scriptural examples and talk about the demand, the requirements. President uh, um, uh, Hinckley was once asked in a press conference early on in his administration, uh, his service, what's that thing that concerns you the most? And he was very quick to answer growth. We are growing all over the world. And there was a study that was done um, several years ago by uh, a Newsweek writer and and uh, uh, indicated, you know, this massive growth. And I think the time is proving that that massive growth, those trajectories are not actually happening the way that he indicated. But even if you look at the, the very, very, very lowest, most conservative side of that, 
you know, we are growing at a point around the world where the need for all of us, regardless of calling to step up and lead is just profound. And so I, I address those kinds of things. I, the way I've outlined the, the sections, I, I provide a, um, a scripture um, that serves as, as sort of the, uh, the, uh, the point of reference on leadership. And I talk about the, what are the natural laws or the principles uh, that are applying that relate to that scripture? What are the, what are the mindsets that I need to have around that? And then specifically, what are the practices? So that first section really talks about um, that. And then as we've talked about part two is how do I lead in my own life? The practices are, do you know who you really are? What is your identity? The second practice there is to offer your whole soul. There's that beautiful, you know, we sometimes dismiss these scriptures in the Book of Mormon from, from Lehi, excuse me, from Jacob to um, uh, uh, King Benjamin. Uh, we have 270 years of prophets um, that don't get a whole lot of airtime, but but there is that one phrase. There's actually many wonderful leadership lessons if you study those, and one of those is this concept of offer your whole soul. Regardless of your calling, offer your whole soul. Uh, there's a, a section on how to use your time intentionally. And then how do we press forward that wonderful verse in 2 Nephi 31 20, uh, where in two rich, um, meaningful sentences, uh, Nephi says, Here's really what you, here's kind of the essence of life. Talks about the need to press forward with the steadfastness in Christ and having a perfect brightness of hope. So that's, the, that's section two. What does that mean to press forward? How do we do that? How do we remember? Um, if you have anyone that is, you know, kind of struggling with their faith or their place in the in the church, and 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 uh, are forgetting maybe some of the those moments in our lives, those poignant, rich, powerful moments where we have felt something, um, that that would be you know maybe a resource to turn to. Um, that reminds us. Section three, I talk about uh, leadership in my family, and that is comprised of how do I lead with charity? Um, how do I keep an internal perspective? We've talked about that. How do I lead with empathy? One of the great, great um, practices that we can ever learn is to lead with empathy. The Savior certainly did. And then chapter 12, um, learning to hear him. How do we hear him in the big things and in the little things? And do we petition and we expect and do we do we recognize when we hear? So that's section three. Section four is then how do I lead in my calling? There comes those times um, when we're tapped on the shoulder, as Winston Churchill said, to do something extraordinary and maybe uniquely fitted to our talents or maybe not. Um, you know, are we are we ready for that? Are we prepared? What happens when when you receive that calling? How do we organize and manage the work? Part of our role as a teacher in any capacity is to teach. And so I have a section there on teaching. How do we then develop other leaders? And finally, um, and I end with this, uh, for me, one of the most profound leadership lessons that of, of the many, many, many that the Savior taught and modeled is this ability to lead one by one. And so that's how that's how I conclude. Um, I love that. And, uh, you know, listeners, I told you I've read a couple of these chapters. This is a serious book that is kind of in the Steve Covey vein that I have enjoyed with Steve Covey's book, and you've been alongside of him for decades. Um, Sean reminded me that Steve's been gone about 10 years, but this is this type of a book 
Um, and those books were transforming for me in my early years. And I probably ought to reread all those books as well as your book. Um, talk about um, Lead One by One. Yeah. The very last chapter, 16. I'm For some reason, I'm thinking of new leaders. Uh, maybe you can just talk to new leaders that are listening, just receiving a calling and feeling overwhelmed. And they get uh, lots of advice from lots of different sources and things to read and things to ponder. And that can be good and overwhelming. But just talk to that group and also talk to this concept of lead one by one. Yeah, thank you. I really love this principle. First of all, on you know, you get that calling and you feel overwhelmed. I, I served uh, in a in a stake presidency in a YSA environment where we had to had the privilege of calling lots of bishops and bishoprics, and you know, you, Richard, you've had that experience and you know how overwhelmed you feel. True. And uh, I I really um, didn't ever give uh, a lot of uh, advice except for one to new bishops. And that was this, the Lord, I believe, and a friend of mine, when I was called, said this to me, he said, there are those who are called who have all the time in the world. They're retired. They have, and there are those who are young in their career, who are traveling and kids and demands and financial pressures, and they don't have all the time in the world. And one might be able to give 40 or 50 hours a week to the calling. And one might be able to give 12 or 13. Both are needed. And one is not more effective than the other. And in the spirit of that, I, I would tell these great men and women, the Lord will, will magnify those who he calls. That'll You'll learn that. But one bit of advice that I would counsel you to do in any calling is to keep a tender mercies journal. I love that idea. Write down those remarkable things that happen in the context of your service. You will see the hand of the Lord work through you. You will feel his influence. You will hear his voice. You will touch lives in ways that he would do if he were there, but because he's not there, he's called you. Don't forget those experiences. So that's one bit of advice that I give um, to to new people in their callings. You know, as you jump in, um, you'll have some pretty remarkable experiences. Don't forget those. Write them down. In my life, there are times where I, frankly, am not proud to admit I've been better at keeping journals than other times. But but this is a different kind of journal. It's a tender mercies journal. And just write those experiences that come. And another thing that I, 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 I love for anyone in their calling uh, go back and read section 80 of the Doctrine and Covenants. It's only, I think, three verses long. It's one of those short where sometimes we gloss over it and you know move on to section 81 and as we're reading sequentially. But there's a, there's a great message there. He's talking to a couple of gentlemen that we don't know much about in church history, but he's, he calls them to the work. The Lord calls them to the work. And he said, you can go to the north or to the south or to the east or to the west. It does not matter. Just get to work. Just go and do, right? And and so so I don't think we need to worry about having everything figured out before we actually engage and jump into our calling. Sometimes we just need to get to work. And we find a we find a, a piece of paper on the ground, pick it up. That's one that's one thing you can do today, right? So so just start doing, and you will find that the Lord will guide you and inspire you. But this notion of leading one by one. I think is one of the great, great lessons that the Savior taught us in his leadership. Certainly he had and has the power 
to move mountains and to do these extraordinary things with extraordinary groups of people. And, and yet in the midst of that, somehow those who turn to him feel him individually. They feel his love individually and intimately as, as if you're the only person on the earth that matters. And if you haven't had that experience, go have that experience. It is available for you. The, the, the example that, that always comes back, I know that people have heard this, and so it's not an original thought by me, certainly, but it certainly, um, you know, impacts me greatly. When I was 14 years old, my we were on a scout uh, camp out, and my best friend and I were laying under the stars with our sleeping bags, on top of our sleeping bags, uh, looking up at the night, the summer night sky. And I looked at those stars and how far they were and I started to, you know, get a simple, simple comprehension of distance and space and physics and all of that. And it, it hit me that the light that I'm seeing now is millions of years old. And that if I could get the longest, we were redoing something in our yard, we had these PVC pipes. And I thought if I could stack PVC pipes on one over the next, you know, two miles long, I mean, it's not even going to reach, you know, get out of our atmosphere. I mean, I and and I started to think about all that I didn't know and understand, and then apply that to uh, to what the Lord taught Enoch, where He said, you know, um, if you could number the particles, the particles. Think about that on a subatomic level, Richard. If you could number the particles of this earth, yea, and millions of earths like it, you would not begin to number the vastness of thy creation, he tells me. I mean, I'm, so I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking, gosh, who am I? I mean, I'm just not, I'm not even a speck. I don't even register. And then you come across this verse in Moses 135, as you're leading up to that great, great verse we quote all the time in Moses 139. But Moses 135, you probably shouldn't have favorite scriptures, but maybe is one of mine, if not the favorite, where the Lord says to Moses, all things are numbered unto mine, for they are mine, and I know them. Isn't that marvelous? Wow. That all that God has, we're numbered and we're known. He knows us. He knows everything about us. So think about just maybe this last thought. You get to uh, uh, Third Nephi, uh, chapter 11 where um, you know the Nephites and the Lamanites have been told for 600 years that the prophet that that the lord would come that he wouldn't this was a promise he made he wouldn't forget them but think about 600 years i mean 600 years ago for us what was that 1620 ish i mean what was happening 600 oh, 1420 sorry 1400s i mean what was happening in the 1400s ask anybody go on the street say hey tell me what's happening in 14 none of us know I mean, that was so far so long ago we don't have a point of reference even. And I'm sure there are people who have studied that and have great expertise, but I'm certainly not one of them. That's how long it had been since Lehi had come. Wow. And now 600 years later, the prophets had reminded them from time to time. But think about it. You're there in the land bountiful that day. You're one of the 2,500 people. And you hear that voice and you don't understand it the first time. And it comes the second time. You just still don't understand it. But then that third time it comes. And you recognize it. And it's this, this, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I can't even imagine what that experience is like where the voice of the father said, this is my beloved son, hear him. And then you see the savior come down. 
And, and he says to those people right out of the gates, he announces who he is, that he is there because it had been promised. And you learn that he lives and that he, 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 uh, he didn't forget. He doesn't forget you. He said he would come. He said he would deliver. He is here and find that he loves you. And you know that great, great moment where he invites them, all 2,500 of them, one by one to come up to him and to feel the prints of the nails in his hands and his side, one by one of all of the things after all of that time that he could have, what is it that he would teach us? And he teaches us that he knows us one by one. I mean, it, it is just so overwhelming to think about that the power of that leadership concept that in the midst of all of our, you know, the key to the 99 is the one. It's that sheep that is lost. It is sheep that is out there. And there are others who can do the 90. But you as leader, make that human connection. Go find the one. I, I think that's what the Savior is ultimately trying to teach us. If, if I might, just one last thought. I'm probably over time. but No, keep going. I, I think of this moment. I, I share this in my chapter on charity. I think at this moment, uh, what I consider to be the Savior's last lecture. He had he had been on his mission, his ministry for three years, and all the wonderful parables and the and the lives that have been impacted, the change he brought to those around, you know, everything that he had done, the disruption, uh, the threatened threat sense of threatening, all in you know the political environment, all of that. So. He's leaving the Temple Mount for the last time that last week. And I I wasn't there and I don't know what was said, but I just envisioned one of his disciples is on the Mount of Olives looking back on their way to Bethany uh, for that last night there and saying, you've taught so much. You've taught so much. What, what uh, I mean, my goodness, what, what's the most important? And he gives these three wonderful parables, very short. The first is the parable of the 10 virgins. And I think what the Savior is saying to us is live your lives in such a way that you always have oil for your lamp. Number one. Lesson number two, he teaches the parable of the, of the, um, uh, what is the parable there? Of the um, talent, sorry. And I think what the Savior is saying to us is among other things, because you know, there's a richness and depth in each of these parables. We go so many layers, but I think he's saying you know, you've been given a lot. He Remember, he's speaking to those who are followers, to his members. Magnify what you've been given in the blessing of other people's lives. Don't squander it. Don't hide under a bushel. Magnify it. And then he concludes his very final parable, uh, which is just the capstone for me. And it's the parable of the sheep and the goats, sheep and the goats. And, and, you know, the goats are on one hand and the king and the sheep are on the other hand. And, and his people are the, are the sheep. And, and uh, you know, how do I get the right hand? He's, and he says, he talks about, you know, inasmuch as you have done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. That is really what we are supposed to learn. Of all of the things that he could have left, he's saying, you know what, how you treat each other is it. That's the preeminent lesson. In this life, can you lead with the same love that I have demonstrated to you? Uh, that, 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 that to me is the, the capstone leadership lesson, I think, for all of us. 
It's really powerful. I'm really moved, Sean. I, that's part of the book I read today, and I ended up tweeting out a few of those scriptures that you quoted. Um, um, and it just resonates with me. Um, there was some great nuggets there. Some people may be rewinding. <clears throat> I love that the time is not a measure of your effectiveness at leader. And I love the principle you teach there, Sean, that it, there's sort of a comparison that you're trying to get people not to do with the prior leader you're replacing or other peer leaders. And I think you've just got, and it comes back to your parable of the talents, is you've got to use your talents to be the kind of leader God called yeah. you to be and not the kind of leader who's you're following or who you look up to. And you can and just be you and use your talents. And time, 40 hours a week may not be one, quote unquote, one of your talents, but um, 12 hours may be just what the Lord needs from you to do the things he needs you to do in your area of stewardship. So I love that. I love the parable of the lost sheep, and I love the idea that, uh, you know, I've thought about that parable too, that Christ knew the lost sheep well enough to know why they left and where to find them. And I think that's an important ministering principle is to understand our flocks and some of the issues they're facing and some of the things that made it lead them, quote-unquote, to be lost sheep for a period of time um, so that we can help bring them back. Um, yeah. I, I It's just interesting to me as I look at um, leadership in my family, um, I you know, we've talked about all four of these, but they're not like control, authority, they're not sort of their develop charity, lead with empathy, keep an eye for eternal perspective, learn to hear him. And I think you have this gift of, of using Jesus as the perfect leader and the scriptures and our church leader um, quotes and what they've taught and bring that into our circles of influence to lead like Jesus led. And he probably wasn't very authoritative and very controlling. I mean, some I don't want to just dismiss those words as not good words. But there's nuance there. But I love one of your gifts is to take um, your life experiences and your expertise and all the leadership circle and training you've done and sort of bring them um, to life through the doctrine of our church and our circles of influence. Um, I wrote down a question that's completely um, out of left field, but talk to, I think you can handle it. Talk to people that are listening that, gosh, you know, Sean, my life really hasn't turned out like I thought it would. Um, I'm in my 40s, 50s, 70s, or 80s, and it's really different than I thought I would, um, either career-wise or where my family is or where I am financially. How do I sort of um, sort of feel hope for my future, even though it's very different than I thought it would be? Yeah. Boy, that is a, that's a <laughs> powerful, um, poignant question. And, and I would suspect that at some point, in all of our lives, we've asked questions like that or very uh, you know, cousins to that question. This is not necessarily what I thought it would be, or gosh, I thought I would be doing more, or I thought I would be, my net worth would be higher or whatever it is that, that my relationships would have been different. And um, uh, so here is just, just a point of view on that. And I hope that what I'm, what I say does not just speak to, you know, the sort of pablum answer that one could give. I, I, I actually think there's some something significant in what the Lord is teaching us with this. Um, I, uh, but just imagine if you, 
you and I were together and I opened, I love to play tennis and you crack open that tennis can and you hear that, you know, the, yeah. the, and you pull up that new wonderful smelling tennis ball that's got all the green felt that's furry, hasn't been damaged by the courts yet. And you put that one sixteenth away from your eye. It's so close, cover one eye, it's so close to your eyeball that it's almost the, those little, those little um, uh, fibers are touching your eye, right? What can you see? And the answer to that is just not a whole lot because it's irritating your eye and it's kind of blocking out all the light. So, all right, I'd take that tennis ball, put it on the lawn 10 feet away. What can you see? Well, I see the tennis ball. I see the grass. I see the surrounding area. Okay. Let's float up a hundred feet. Let's say we could do that. What do you see? Well, I see the tennis ball. I see the house. I see the neighborhood. Let's go a thousand feet or 5,000 feet. I don't see the tennis ball anymore, but I see so much more. Let's go 200,000 miles where the moon is. I see the earth. I see the, I see the, the continents and, and um, maybe it's a, a bad analogy, but um, sometimes I think we live our lives with the tennis ball right up next to our eyeball. We, we fail to recognize that there is one who sees it all, who sees everything with the full perspective and not just the distance, but go the opposite direction where you can actually see that tennis ball and what it's made of all the way down at a molecular level, right? That there is one who knows the beginning from the end. He knows who we were before we came to this earth. He knows of our tendencies. He knows, uh, he knows stuff about us that we don't know. He knows who we are today. He knows of the things that we struggle with, of the things that bring us joy, of the things that we want and hope and desire, and, and he knows who we must and will become. We have perfect parents. I don't, Richard, I don't fully understand everything about our Heavenly Father's plan. I don't fully understand everything about what it means to be the perfect parent, to have a father in heaven and a mother in heaven who know me and who love me and they know me better than I know myself. My advice and counsel is probably simplistic. And yet I think it's important. It is to trust in the one who knows. Um, And if things are not exactly where you think they should be, or you thought they were going to be um, trust in him, remember him. I, I have a friend who told me this story. He, for several years, he left activity uh, in the church. He had some questions about some doctrinal issues that he was just not certain about that really troubled him. And, and he used that as something that, that caused him to, you know, distance himself. His family kept going, but he stopped going to the temple. He'd occasionally go to sacrament meeting, but, but that, was, that was it. And uh, after about 20 years, um, he, had a, he had a wonderful bishop and, and they worked together and and he surprised his wife one time with a renewed temple recommend. Wow. Um, and he had, you know, still has some questions, served in um, uh, served in meaningful capacities. And, and I think has been a guide to a lot of people who've kind of gone on a similar journey. Wonderful, wonderful man. One of my dearest friends. But he said to me a while back, he said, you know, Sean, I don't. I don't have every answer to every question. I don't. I still have some questions about this or, or that. But I do know this. I wish I hadn't done what I did. I wish that I had, using my words now, I wish I hadn't seen the world 
with the tennis ball right up next to my eye because I certainly don't have all the answers. I wish I had trusted in someone who had a little bit more perspective. And it doesn't mean that that I still agree with everything, but I have found such peace in my membership in the church and returning to the temple that I'm, I'm working through other things and it's okay. I'm okay with that journey. I just, I need to trust in the one who knows anyway. Um, That's an answer, Richard, that it's easy to talk about. <laughs> um, that was a really it's, thoughtful it's answer, universal. Sean. Um, I thought you could handle that question. I, um, I won't, I haven't thought about the smell of a tennis ball because I don't play tennis regularly for a long time, but to sort of open that can with us and put that tennis ball right in front of your face and then pull it way back. Yeah. um, Yeah. It's a very powerful visual to answer that question and to give peace with the eternal perspective that we understand with the gospel of Jesus Christ, even if the realities of our mortal life are different than what we thought they would be or what they hoped we would be. And, and perhaps our restored doctrine should give us a lot of peace because we understand the big picture. Um, so I'm going to call that the tennis ball analogy. And I've got to go now to a sporting goods store and buy a can of tennis balls and <laughs> just smell that smell again. Cause there is a smell when you open a Something about that smell. I love. Um, I've learned, you know, I love your sharing your friend. And I think, you know, we talk about tough issues on this podcast and yes. a thought that came to my mind is I didn't have a lot of dissonance, um, or like your friend questions. And then I've some dissonance has come into my journey with the church, even as a committed Latter-day Saint. And I always thought the, the plan was to end the dissonance. And I, that may be the plan and that may be the plan for others. But I think what I've learned to do is just sort of live with the dissonance and not having answers to everything in the past or where we are with current issues. And, and there's a little bit of uncomfortableness on living the, with the dissonance, but the, uh, but leaving for me would be would create additional dissidents, and um, because there's so much I value in our church and our restored doctrine and tending the temple, and and so that model may work for a lot of you listeners. Um, some of you may have no dissidents, and I don't want to introduce dissidents, but there are other maybe other faithful Latter Day Saints with some dissidents, and and that may end for you, but that may be something you just learn to live with, and that's part of mortality in your journey as a committed Latter Day Saint. So I love your friend. I love you sharing that story and his journey back to the church and people that loved him. Anything yeah. in closing that just comes to your mind, Sean, you feel impressed to yeah. share with our listeners? Let, let, let me close with this thought that, that, um, that built on what you just shared. Through, the Lord taught through the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 13. Paul has just taught us these beautiful, magnificent um, uh, doctrines on charity. And at the end of that chapter, he says, now for now, we, we see through a glass darkly. Then the time will come where we see face to face. Then we will know even as we now are known, we're known by someone who knows us. The time will come eventually where we get the same perspective, but now we see through a glass darkly and it's hard. I so appreciate what you just shared around dissonance. I think that also is a universal experience. And I, I, I quoted earlier the scripture, 2 Nephi 31.20, where Nephi is sort of giving his last lecture. And he talks about um, uh, press forward with a steadfastness in Christ, having a perfect brightness of hope and a love of God and of all men. And then he says, if he shall press forward, feasting upon the words of Christ, behold, you know, he shall have eternal life. And 
I think in those two sentences, in that one little verse, lies the essence of really what we are here to learn. I think that verse applies to marriage. We get married, we fall in love, we have those initial feelings of, you know, utopia and all this. And then we and then we jump into our relationships and we learn that marriage is absolutely wonderful and and marvelous and hard every day. You have to you have to be deliberate marriage partner. Um, being a member of the church is wonderful. And at times it can be hard because of questions that one might ever it is. This is my, maybe my, my parting thought, um, as you were talking, uh, the Lord uh, through the scriptures, through his prophets, he gives lots of commandments. He sent Moses to Sinai, came down with 10 of them, right? Um, there, there are commandments throughout all of the scriptures. I think there is one commandment that he gives more often than any other commandment. And it's not the commandment to repent and to be clean, although that happens a lot, as it should. The commandment that he gives us more than, at least according to my calculation, and maybe I'm off, but I don't think so, is the commandment to remember. To remember. Every covenant we make, every law that we have, that you go in the Old Testament, you go into the law. I mean, everything is designed. The, the, the whole experience of the temple and going back again and again and again, renewing our covenants every Sunday again and again and again, you know, 52 times in a year throughout all of our life. It is to, it is, I believe, it is designed to help us remember. I believe that every single one of us have had moments where we have felt the Lord's love where we have felt his instruction, his guidance, an answer to a prayer. Maybe we've been sitting in a meeting. If we've had something touch us, maybe we've had a thought come to our mind. Maybe we have been praying about something and, and we have an impression. Maybe we're sitting through general conference and we feel our heart pricked and we want to be better. Maybe we're taking the sacrament. Maybe we watch our child do something where we feel those emotions swell up. Maybe we stand up to bear our testimony and to a surprise, to our surprise, we start to get emotional because we feel whatever it is, maybe we've received a blessing or maybe we've given a blessing. Maybe it's that moment where you're in the quiet of your own room, like it was for me at 17 years old, pulling out my, I just received a copy of my patriarchal blessing in the mail from my great patriarch. And, and I open up and I read it. And I, I, I had this feeling like, Sean, this is for you. And, you know, we all have those moments, whatever they are, and then we forget them in the press of life. I did one study on this, and I quote this in the book, and I, even as I tell you this, I know that it's completely, completely um, insufficient, where the, the word remember or one of its derivatives is, is, uh, is given in commandment form you know, over 600 times. The Lord will bless us, has blessed us. And if you think about when you have felt that at some point, how many times in a week and how many, you know, since you read the age of accountability, how I'm 55 years old now, how many times have I, have I felt some guidance from my heavenly father, some little thing in my life? My job is to remember that. Don't forget it. Remember, remember my sons, if you'll remember the rock of your salvation, then, then it will guide us through. We all share in those moments of dissonance, in those moments where we don't have every answer. Um, but let's not forget 
the multitude, the thousands, if not tens of thousands of times, where we have felt the Lord reach out and touch our heart and say, you amongst all, amongst all of my creations are known and numbered. I did it all for you. I need you to remember that. That's, that's my parting thought. That was a great parting thought. Um, thank you, Sean. Um, I love the word remember. I love the concept we're never outside the love of our heavenly parents. And so even if we're remembering, but we think we've gone too far, don't do that. And I love your suggestion as part of remembering is to write, create a tender mercies journal. Um, that is a really thoughtful idea to just remember all the things that we experience as Latter-day Saints in our callings, I think was where you suggested, but we could just do that as part of our lives. Yeah. Yes. Uh, to help us remember. And then when we get in a tougher spot, to be able to read back to those experiences and to remember the experience so to sustain us. Um, listeners, please check out Sean's book. It's a serious book. It's a really good book. It's called Learning Leadership from the Scriptures, 12 Practices for Building a Leadership Effectiveness Based on Timeless and Eternal Principles. I'll link to it in the show notes. Um, Really grateful to meet you, Sean. We've been trading messages for a while, and I'm so glad that you've come on the podcast, and I personally have benefited from hearing you, and thanks for your contribution in our community in so many different circles and your work to bring us together as the same human family. So, listeners, this is Sean Moon and Richard Osler signing off from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. <music>